patience and love to thy servant. Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Monday, March 6th, we are into the second week of Lent already. Can you believe it? It's crazy how time flies. We've already been in the desert here for a couple of weeks now, and hopefully we're all getting used to the climate <laughs> as time continues on here in this spiritual desert. The Lord leads us here in order to purify us, to strengthen us, strengthen our faith, to strip away those things in us that, uh, that, uh, yeah, hinder the working of His grace and to open us up more deeply to faith, hope, and love. So uh, it's always an adventure, you know, following the Lord, going where the Spirit leads and into the wilderness. Uh, we're sure to have many adventures along the way. So I, I hope um, for all of you so far this Lent, you're both experiencing the adventure and you're experiencing the closeness of the Lord, the, uh, the sustenance and the providence of His Holy Spirit and um, coming maybe to a, an even deeper awareness, being reminded of what it means to be sons and daughters of such a great Father and to have uh, the Lord Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, for our brother. It's a great thing, a great thing to be uh, a Christian, a great thing to be a Catholic. Uh, it's a beautiful day here. You can probably hear the birds twittering away. And actually, there's, well, now there's some chainsaws <laughs> going off not far from me. They're doing some uh, landscaping work out here that was perfectly timed. But before the chainsaws, you could hear some, uh, some seagulls. Seagulls, um, what do they do? Calling, I suppose, or cawing, I don't know. But I've been hearing them all day. You know, we're, um, we're not terribly close to the water here. I hear them a lot in South San Francisco, where my parish is when I go up there on Sundays, but, but uh, they've migrated down the peninsula. <laughs> and they've been here making me dream of the sea, much like uh, Legolas in Lord of the Rings was, was prophesied that when he heard the calling of the seagulls, that his heart would never more be at rest in Middle Earth. He would have to sail west across the sea back to Valinor, the undying lands. Well, I don't think I'm quite ready for that yet, but I would love to go to the sea. <laughs> and maybe one of these days upcoming, like tomorrow, perhaps I will. We've just finished our mid-term break here at St. Patrick's Seminary. Uh, we had uh, from Wednesday through Sunday off, so a nice five days. Of course, I still had uh, parish duties. I was at Mater Dolorosa this weekend on Sunday. Also Friday night, we had a healing mass, our monthly first Friday uh, healing mass at 7 p.m., which is always such a, a delight. Um, for the break, though I was mostly around here at the seminary. Um, nice to have a little bit of extra margin in my schedule. So without, uh, you know, too many onerous academic sort of things to do, I was able to catch up on some Dickens reading. We'll talk more about that soon. And uh, some, some other just personal reading and catch up on some correspondence. Um, and yeah, just other little little activities and things that I tend to put off, you know, till I had a, a free moment. So it was nice and mostly a restful few days and nice to have some uh, beautiful weather here as well. I understand in Oregon there's been a lot of snow recently. And here we've had a lot of rain, mostly. And uh, we actually had 
kind of a winter storm um, at the very beginning of Lent. I don't think I mentioned this yet on the podcast. So um, our first night of Lent, the night before Ash Wednesday, was a true dark night here at the seminary because we had this intense windstorm and and rainstorm um, blow through the Bay Area and actually it knocked out power to a lot of the Bay Area, including Menlo Park, for you know about 24 hours or so, and uh, and it, so that began on Tuesday afternoon, so-called Fat Tuesday, and <laughs> continued through close to the end of the day of Ash Wednesday. So you know the beginning of Lent for us was really a dark night. You know I was uh, <laughs> taking a cold shower by candlelight Ash Wednesday morning, like some kind of medieval monk. Well, I guess the monks probably wouldn't have taken showers at all, but anyway. <laughs> it was an interesting start to the season. But you know what, what was especially beautiful about it was how bright the stars were. And you know, I, I had been sick, I, I may have mentioned this before on the podcast, I was yeah sick for several days leading up, right, right up to Ash Wednesday, and so that Tuesday when the power w- went out in the afternoon was like the first day I really left my room, uh, you know, for like four or five days before that. So I went out, and it was all dark and very disorienting. And uh, I was headed to the refectory to try to find something to eat. And so I'm going through these dark hallways, feeling my way along. And I step outside, and I look up, and the stars in the sky are so bright because the lights around us, of course, were all off. Now, far off, further off in the distance, you could see the city lights. Um, but, you know, it was interesting that even with the city lights still glowing, not terribly far away, the darkness around us made it possible to see the stars in so much more glory and splendor than I think I ever have here in the Bay Area. You know, we hardly see them at all (laughs) because our lights around us are normally uh, so bright. So that was an interesting experience. There's probably a spiritual lesson in that. You know, the Lord leads us into darkness sometimes to be able to see the lights above more clearly. Um, which we're often distracted from by the glimmering lights of this world, which surround us and uh, capture our attention so easily. So that was the beginning of Lent for us here at St. Pat's. But fortunately, the power was restored (laughs) before too long, and we've been doing fine since then. And and as I say, the weather's cleared up. It's back to kind of our normal spring uh, climate. But it has been an interesting year for winter storms here in California. I mean, Los Angeles has had snow from what I understand. And uh, I know all of you up in Portland have had a lot like 10 inches, right? Lots and lots of snow. So prayers for all of you. Hope you're staying warm and staying safe. Uh, I wanted to share with you the news that uh, about, let's see, a week ago Friday, so what, like 10, 10 days ago, I submitted my petition for holy orders. And uh, this is, you know, kind of, it's kind of a formality, but it's an important step too, because um, the man who will be ordained writes in his own hand um, this petition. The Code of Canon Law tells us what the petition has to say, but um, of course, you know, it's not just you're writing, you're following a form. Um, You're supposed to express it in your own words, but there are certain points you have to cover, like I'm asking for this freely, I'm not under any kind of uh, constraint. Um, I'm not aware of any impediments to my ordination, etc. I'm not motivated by fear, etc., etc. So you have to include all of that. But it really is your petition asking to be received into, in my case, the order of the presbyterate, the order of the holy priesthood, 
of Jesus Christ. And so you write this petition and, and it goes to your bishop or archbishop. And then what you receive back is, is the call to orders, the official call. And it's a written document from the archbishop signed by his own hand, which indicates that, in fact, you are called <laughs> to be a priest. I remember last year getting my call to orders for the diaconate, and it, it really had a surprising impact on me. Um, because, you know, we go through this formation for so long, and, and uh, for so many years we're discerning, right? That's the language we always use. We're discerning the vocation. And, and then we eventually, you know, we come to a point where we've kind of discerned and we've said, yes, yes, as, you know, as far as I know, I'm called to this, I'm preparing for this, I'm moving ahead in faith saying, yes, Lord, uh, unless uh, you say no, <laughs> I'm all in. But then there's, there's still always that, um, that uncertainty until the letter arrives in the mail, until it's official, until it's formal. And I remember so clearly the letter that Archbishop Sample sent at the, at the outset of the letter, it says, you are called, you are hereby called <laughs> to the order of the diaconate. So every day since I wrote this petition for Holy Orders for Priesthood, I've been checking the mail every day with great anticipation, <laughs> waiting for the call to orders to arrive. And it hasn't come yet, but it should come any day now. So please pray for that. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to ordination June 3rd, my first Mass June 4th. And I'm making plans for some other masses of thanksgiving around the Portland Archdiocese uh, in the month of June before I start my first assignment. So uh, I'm going to go back and visit some of the parishes where I've been assigned before as a seminarian and as a deacon, hoping to come to Ashland, to Eugene, of course, Cottage Grove, and uh, visit, visit those communities. So those of you who are from those places, I am very excited to see you soon. In a few months, um, pray God as a priest of Jesus Christ. It's right around the corner. I mean, three months away. It's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And uh, yeah, I can hardly believe it myself. The Lord is doing so much so quickly. And uh, of course, as I say, it's been you know nine years in the making. But now as we're kind of coming down the home stretch, it's, it's wild. It's wild that it's all coming together so soon. So... Uh, ho hope to see many of you there in June uh, for the ordination of the First Mass. That's occupying a lot of my attention these days as I'm just planning ahead and even just doing the kind of, you know, logistical planning of where are people going to stay and how are we going to transport them and so on and so forth. But it's a great joy to even attend to all of these minute details because... Um, yeah, it's all just a reminder that right around the corner is the day I've been preparing for for almost a decade. So, thanks be to God for yeah all of His grace and um, all of His generosity and love and His designs of mercy over us. All right, well, let's jump over now for a few minutes and just discuss a little bit about our current Dickens read from the Dickens Chronological Reading Club. We have just begun to read Dombey and Son, and I have some preliminary thoughts on this very interesting novel. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. 
God bless us. Everyone. What the dickens? So, Dombey and Son. The way we've been discussing this so far in the, in the comments, the ongoing conversation of the DCRC, which of course you can find and join in on yourself at reninkpaper.com, that's W-R-E-N inkpaper.com, the website of uh, Rachel, who is the co-founder of the club along with Bose Harrington. So in our conversations there on the DCRC website, um, people have been talking about Dombey and Son as marking the beginning of a new phase in Dickens's career as an author. Um, some people have called it the beginning of his second act <laughs> in his own life. And it's interesting to consider that because Dombey and Son, to me, is such a different kind of novel than anything else we've read so far from Dickens. It really strikes a different kind of a tone. And uh, the best description for it that I, I think I've come across so far was contributed by Rob Gall, one of our DCRC members, who refers to this kind of haze of poetry <laughs> that hangs over the novel, almost like the fog of London hangs over the city streets. There's this kind of a poetic fog, or as I've taken to calling it, it's kind of this, this hazy backdrop so you have all this activity and, and action, the main plot action happening in the foreground, but in the background, you have this kind of, again, hazy, almost dreamlike, symbolic level of images and, and phrases and even Dickens' use of language and alliteration. It's all very poetic and it, it's operating at a very high level. And it's occurring in the background such that all the plot activity occurs against this poetic backdrop. And what do I mean by the poetic backdrop? Well, I don't want to really give away any spoilers um, in case you haven't made it this far yet into Dombey and Son, because we're still just reading it now. We're, I'm, I'm about um, 14 chapters I in. I found this on the web. <laughs> Siri just gave me some links to Dombey and Son from Wikipedia. <laughs> Very helpful, Siri. Thank you. Um, so I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but some of the images in the background are like the sea... The, the continual um, coming in and going out of the tide of the sea and the great river, the, the Thames River flowing out to the sea and the sound of the water. And another recurring image and, and sort of sound quality in the background is um, the ticking of a great clock. And you even hear in some of the character names, Rob Gall pointed out, um, you have Miss Chick and Miss Talk. <laughs> so you have this Chick Talk, Chick Talk. If you're reading Dombey and Son out loud, you're going to get that effect. And it has this implicit kind of mm, literary effect upon the reader or the listener to remind you that there's this clock, there's a literal clock that's ticking away in the background in one of the houses that we spend some time in in these early chapters of Dombey and Son. So there's the sound of the sea, the waves, the river, there's the ticking of the clock, there's the passing of time. There's also um, Mr. Dombey himself, the father of uh, young Dombey, young Paul Dombey, who we see born in the very first chapter of the novel, so no spoiler there. And Mr. Dombey, who is as cold as ice, I mean, he's absolutely... He's kind of the, the ideal portrait of a Victorian gentleman. He's completely buttoned down. You have no idea what's happening beneath the surface. He's cold, calculating, 
um, you know, completely flat affect and all the rest. And you see him continually referred to throughout the novel in different places as kind of a shadow. He's like a shadow by his wife's bedside after she gives birth to young Paul. Then later on, as Paul is lying sick in bed, again, his father's like a shadow there against the wall, and Paul hardly recognizes him. And then um, walking outside uh, on the street, he's sort of haunting the street outside this house, this school, where he sent his son to go and study. And so these kind of images, right, the shadow, the haunting shadow, the ticking of the clock, time passing by, the sea uh, going out and coming in, and the river flowing out, these make up the poetic backdrop, the kind of symbolic um, level which lies behind the main foreground action. So I see really two ways that Dickens has evolved so much as a writer in Dombey and Son from the last novels that we read. Um, and, and, you know, Martin Chuzzlewit and Barnaby Rudge, the two last ones that we read, were not terribly well received critically. And, and you heard from our conversations, you know, there were certainly, I mean, Dickens is a master writer. <laughs> there were some great qualities in these two novels, but they were pretty uneven in terms of quality. There were some things we liked, some things we really didn't. Particularly in Chuzzlewit, you know, we spoke about the uh, American journey as kind of, it's like shoehorned in, like two stories just awkwardly juxtaposed together, <laughs> sort of jammed together. Barnaby Rudge, too, there was this kind of quality of the story takes this sudden turn midway through and becomes something completely unexpected. Well, we know in these earlier novels that Dickens was not really plotting very carefully. Rachel would say he was more of a pantser than a plotter. He was writing by the seat of his pants, not so much, you know, planning ahead every detail. And in Dombey and Son, we know that he was really planning ahead carefully because we have his notes. And so that's an obvious change that marks the beginning of his second act as a writer. And so on the level of plot, the kind of foreground level, if we're thinking in terms of the stage, the, on the level of plot, Dickens is really working at a very high level, a different level than he was before. He's carefully planned ahead everything in the novel, and it, and it shows. Even for me, reading this for my first time, I don't know where everything is going, but I have a clear sense that it's going somewhere <laughs> and that I'm in the hands of a storyteller who's taking me somewhere very definite. He has a goal in mind. Again, it's very well done. It's not like he's telegraphing what's coming next. I don't know what's coming next. I was surprised by a major plot twist in chapter 12. And if you've read that far, you know exactly what I'm referring to. Uh, looking back, Afterwards, you see, oh, this was always going to happen. But it, it took me by surprise that Dickens went there. Um, he, went, he went there. <laughs> so the plotting is very careful and very meticulous um, and very detailed. But at the same time, and this is what's so astounding to me, is at the very same time, Dickens is paying such careful attention to what's going on in the background. This level of poetry really. This level of symbolic illusion, these almost over-determined images, and his use of, of language and phrases, and he uses them judiciously just enough. Once in a while, he'll bring them back into the foreground just to bring them to our conscious attention, and then they recede back into the background, and they're sort of half-remembered. That's why I say this like vague, dreamlike, almost haze of images <laughs> behind everything else going on. But they're half-remembered, but they're remembered. And so we know what's going on in the foreground is happening against this poetic backdrop of time passing away, of the, 
the tide rolling out to sea. That's a, a, certainly a major theme so far in Dombey and Son, is um, the passing of time and really the coming of a new era. You know, there's the, uh, the, rail, the railway has come to London and it's making its way across all England. And so uh, many of the characters, you know, are referred to or refer to themselves as old-fashioned. There's a sense of the world is speeding up and it's passing some people by. And so, um, yeah, from the very beginning of the novel, there's birth, there's death, there's a new age that's dawning, and uh, there's a sense that time is, is picking up, time is moving on relentlessly, and you're either going to keep up with it or you're going to be left behind. You're going to be carried out to sea. So that's just one of the themes of this novel that's, um, I think, really present from the beginning. But yeah, I don't want to get too much into thematic analysis because we're still just reading it now. But I did just want to share that with Dombey and Son, we've entered kind of a new era of Dickens. And so if, as I know some of you have, <laughs> if you've kind of given up on Dickens, <laughs> and that's understandable because some of the early works, as I say, were a little uneven and, and so on, and the pacing was not always the best, and you know, there were uh, things to admire and, and things to criticize. With Dombey and Son, um, to be sure, it's not going to be a perfect novel, but this is a markedly different level of craftsmanship. And as a student of literature and a student of poetry myself, I am just in awe <laughs> of what Dickens is doing. And I can see why he was called in his day the inimitable, <laughs> the one who cannot be imitated. Uh, it's amazing that he's writing at this level of uh, just literary craftsmanship. So on that level, I admire Dombey and Son. And then just as a reader, I'm completely engrossed in it. It's been a joy to have a little bit extra time these last several days to, to go deep into this story and um, just be carried away by it. So that's my recommendation for you. If you haven't started already, uh, feel free to jump in and join us, Dombey and Son, and join the conversation at reninkpaper.com. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints. But I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. Well, let's pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago with St. Teresa's interior castle. Last time that we were on this podcast in the Carmelite segment, we were discussing the transition from the third dwelling places to the fourth. And if you recall, the third dwelling places are called the dwellings of the exemplary life. In the third dwelling places, you've kind of arrived at a level of... You've basically arrived at the level of what would be called the proficients. You're no longer a beginner, you're a proficient in the spiritual life. Meaning, you're no longer falling regularly into grave sin. You know, a lot of those attachments have been broken. You're no longer in love with sin. You may not hate it, <laughs> but you're not in love with it. You're united to the Lord. You're living a well-ordered life, a pretty balanced life with prayer and fasting and, and discipline. And uh, you're growing daily in love for God and love for neighbor, which is the most important quality of all. So you really are living an exemplary life, you know. 
And it's, it's really, I think, a mark, by the way, of um, just the profound insight of St. Teresa into the majesty and the nobility of the soul. That this dwelling place is only the third out of seven. Because how often do we think this is really the pinnacle of the spiritual life? And what St. Teresa tells us is, no, the third dwelling place is only the end of the beginning. It's the end of the beginning, and it's the beginning of something far greater, which in fact is without end. (laughs) It's the beginning of the next step, which when we take that step, we enter into the supernatural way of prayer, the way which begins in God and just takes us up into itself. So far, everything else in the first three dwelling places have been beginning in us and ending in God, meaning it begins with our activity, our effort. Of course, never disregarding the role of prevenient grace, which means God gives us enough grace from the beginning in order to even reach out to him. You know, if not for his grace in the beginning, we couldn't even do that. So that's always a necessary qualifier to have in mind. We're not Pelagians, meaning we recognize we need God's grace even to take the first step, you know, to make the first movement of faith, to step out and and reach out for God. Uh, So we need grace for all of that. But in these first three dwelling places, though, the majority of the action really is precisely that. It's, it's, It's our action, our activity beginning in us. We are its principle. God is its end. Beginning, though, in the fourth dwelling places, the activity begins in and with God. It comes forth from Him, according to His will and His good time. And we are taken up into it, according to our degree of surrender, passivity, um, humility, and openness to the promptings of grace. So the transition from the third to the fourth dwelling places is of tremendous importance in the spiritual life. And... St. Teresa says many souls actually make it to the third dwelling places. Many, many souls do. Um, Not as many make it to the fourth dwelling places. Because to take that next step, to make it from the third to the fourth, you you need a different and a new way of proceeding. It's no longer about our own activity. We can't get there by our own striving. And really the most essential thing we need to make that step is humility, detachment, and simplicity. So what am I really talking about with this transition from the third to the fourth? Primarily what we're talking about here is a transition in our fundamental mode of prayer or our way of praying and relating to God from a natural and an active way to a supernatural and an infused way. The supernatural way of prayer is given by God freely and it must be received freely by the soul when God gives it. And so the way to move forward from the third to the fourth is for the soul simply to allow itself to be open and to receive this gift of prayer from God when he gives it. The role of the soul really is to dispose itself in order to receive the gift, to be disposed, to be properly um, conditioned and attuned and just open to God when he decides to give the gift. And Teresa says from her own experience, by the way, that when a soul, you know, is is open and waiting to receive this gift with humility and detachment and simplicity, 
then God will very quickly come to give the gift of infused prayer because he wants us to have this gift. We need to keep this in mind too in the spiritual life that God wants us to make it all the way to the end. He doesn't reserve his gifts for an elect few to whom he just chooses, you know, his favorites. He wants to give these gifts to all of us. He wants all of us to make it to the seventh dwelling places of union with himself. And as I've said before, if we don't make it there in this life, then we'll go through purgatory in order to make it there in heaven. Because what else is heaven but perfect and eternal union with God? That's what we're ultimately made for. And so our spiritual life, our, our progress in this life, progress in prayer, primarily is the journey to heaven. And we find as we make this journey that heaven is all along the way. Even as we begin to progress in prayer now on this earth, in this, in this life, we are already tasting heaven insofar as we are experiencing union with God. So that's just a little bit of a fervorino to remind us what we're all about and what the Lord is about on this journey. Now, how do we dispose ourselves to receive the gift of infused prayer? Well, here, Teresa says, what we have to do is practice mental prayer. Mental prayer in the third dwelling places as opposed to vocal prayer. So our prayer by the third dwelling places, we need to, to be conscious of including more times of simple, silent recollection. Again, our vocal prayers are not bad. We never abandon vocal prayer at any point along the journey, you know. Um, I've mentioned before, just using the example of my own spiritual life as a deacon and a seminarian, um, you know, I, I do a lot of vocal prayer every day. <laughs> the rosary, um, the liturgy of the hours, of course. So vocal prayer we never leave behind. And even in our, our private mental prayer, some of our mental prayer is vocal <laughs> in the sense that we're conversing with God using words and language and we naturally kind of go in and out of vocal prayer. That's the kind of the primary way that we express ourselves as human beings is through our, our words, our language. So it's very natural. We express ourselves to God in the same way, in vocal prayer. And yet we also know in human communication, um, although we think of our words as primary, much, much more is communicated non-verbally much, much more is communicated, like from my right brain to your right brain, simply through the tone of my voice, my facial expressions, even, even the little micro expressions, I don't know I'm making, but your right brain picks up on them, my body language, and so on. Much more is communicated that way even than by my words. Similar thing with God. In mental prayer, we're not primarily using words. We kind of leave words aside. We even leave like images aside. Mental prayer is much more, uh, to me, about the prayer of the heart. It's about our affective response to God, right? And our disposition, our, our interior attitude towards God. And so Teresa says in our mental prayer, as we begin to be inclined towards recollection, which is this kind of spontaneous movement inwards, Again, we think of vocal prayer kind of happening on the surface with the lips, you know. The mind is engaged too, but it's kind of out there. Mental prayer inclines us interiorly, into ourselves. Our attention is spontaneously drawn inward. Like, remember this image of the hedgehog curling up on itself or the tortoise withdrawing into its shell? 
So as we pray our mental prayer, our attention is drawn inwards. And Teresa says, just use a few little loving words. Unas palabras amorosas. A few loving words. No more. No more than you need to. Simply to, to keep your soul occupied and attentive on God who dwells within. So here you might do your breathing prayer, as we talked about before with Daniel. You might pray the Jesus prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me. Or one of my favorites is the surrender prayer from Don Delindo Rotolo. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. And we just pray with that just a little bit. Now, other thoughts will arise in the mind. Some thoughts will come through, and, and that's fine. We don't try to stop thinking. We're not trying to ar arrive at some kind of state of nirvana, you know, some thoughtless void. No, our intellect is still going to do its intellect thing. It's still thinking about things. Thoughts are bubbling up from the depths of our, of our mind, of our soul. Memories will come to our attention. We'll think of, you know, uh, the next thing on our to-do list. That's fine. That's very natural. In fact, as we're drawn into a deeper state of contemplative prayer, the prayer of quiet, which is the mark of the fourth dwelling places, very often these memories and thoughts will come to our mind precisely because there are places in us that the Lord needs to heal. There are things in our soul that need to be released. Um, one professor I know describes them as like knots of tension in the soul and in the, in the body at the level of our nervous system. You know, there's a book that was written not long ago that, that has had a tremendous impact on the field of uh, psychology and neurobiology, and it's called The Body Keeps the Score. It's true, when we go through traumatic experiences, uh, when we experience a lot of stress, the body remembers, the body keeps the score, li literally on the level of our nervous system. The tremendous thing is that in contemplative prayer, the body enters a state of rest which is deeper than sleep. And so those knots of tension can be released. And there can be deep healing, deep, deep healing. Um, at the level of our souls. And so often what's actually happening in prayer, this was tremendously consoling for me to learn. Often what's actually happening in prayer when like thoughts and memories come up, you know, unexpectedly, is something in us is, is being deeply healed. And so the proper response for us is not to try to fight against those movements. We don't fight the thoughts. We don't fight the memories. But what we are going to do is very simply, without making much of an, an effort, without like exerting ourselves to try to get back to our, our prayer, quote unquote, we just very simply will draw our attention back to Jesus. And we can do it by just repeating his name, saying his name, saying the Jesus prayer, drawing our attention back to our breathing. We can picture Jesus there with us. You know, St. Teresa would do this sometimes, the practice of the presence of Christ. Just uh, picture him as if he's there in the room in front of us or in a memory. If a memory comes up, we invite the Lord into the memory. Say, where was Jesus in that room when that happened to me? And so by means like this, we almost effortlessly just draw our attention back to the presence of the Lord. This is how we practice recollection. This is recollected mental prayer. It's a, I hope you're getting a, kind of a, a picture of it. Um, it's a very simple kind of prayer, so simple that you can almost, you can hardly call it a method, can you? <laughs> it's so simple. 
that uh, any of us can do it. <laughs> That's the tremendous thing about Teresa's method. Other spiritual masters have much more complicated methods. And um, they all have their merits. But the Carmelite style of prayer as taught by St. Teresa is so simple that anyone can do it. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you don't have much time or, you know, you're a busy parent, you've got a long to-do list, you've got a lot of stress. You know, none of that really matters because in the sense that this prayer doesn't require anything of you other than you go apart for however much time you have, a few minutes, and allow your attention to be drawn inward. As we do this, as we practice this kind of prayer, and as our, as our prayer gradually becomes simpler, more effortless, more recollected, more detached, and this will naturally happen over time, then the Lord will come to grant us the favor of the prayer of quiet. And I think I mentioned this in the last episode. I apologize if I'm repeating some material. It's been two weeks and I, I don't remember <laughs> what I covered last time or not. Um, but just to recap this, in the prayer of quiet, what happens is the will, the will is actually like held by God in the palm of his hand, so to speak. The will is utterly absorbed in God. Now again, this effect cannot happen by our own willing it, because obviously, if we're willing something, then the will is still acting. <laughs> if we're willing, the will, is, the will is the one that's willing. But in the prayer of quiet, God, as it were, he reaches out and he just puts the will to sleep. And the will becomes just like a little baby held in God's arms, you know, or like a little purring cat <laughs> that's asleep in God's lap. The will is utterly satisfied and at rest. And what do you think we experience when the will is in this deep, deep rest, absorbed in God? There's a feeling of just utter satisfaction and delight within the soul. There's a feeling of just, I could die right now and, and, and be completely satisfied and at peace and never desire anything else. There's nothing more that I want. There's nothing that I lack. In fact, think of St. Teresa's beautiful prayer. Nada te turbe, nada te espante. Let nothing trouble you. Let nothing worry you. Because, uh, how does this prayer go in English? Nada te turbe, nada te espante. Todo se pasa, Dios no se mueva. Everything passes, but God does not move. And the one who has God has everything. God alone suffices. Solo Dios basta. That's the experience of a woman who has been in the prayer of quiet and spent a lot of time there. And actually, I don't know when in her life she wrote this prayer, but she made it, of course, even further than that. She made it all the way to the uttermost union. The prayer of quiet is just the beginning of our soul's union with God, where the will is absorbed. The intellect is still free. The other powers are all free. So even in the prayer of quiet, you know, it can happen so fluidly, so quickly and so briefly, that we may not even notice it until later when we think back. Um, because the, the intellect is still free, so we might still have our thoughts, you know, our imaginations going, a memory might come up, just bubbling up from beneath, and we might be distracted by that. And we might even think, you know, my prayer's not going very well. And then all of a sudden, somewhere deep, deep within us, there's this incredible feeling, this, this upswelling, surging of deep, undeniable peace. That's the prayer of quiet. 
And afterwards, when the soul looks back, you know, when we look back at that moment, we'll think, without a shadow of a doubt, I was with God. I was absorbed in God. So this is the beginning of the supernatural mode of prayer, the fourth dwelling places. Now, what happens to the soul that's spending time in the fourth dwelling places? Well, as you can imagine, one thing that happens is the soul is going to expand. And again, this is, this is all, you know, this is metaphorical language, okay? It's not like the soul is like our lungs that fill up with air, right? But there's a spiritual truth in this. St. Teresa says the soul expands, the soul is dilated <laughs> by the inrushing presence of God and by the experience of the prayer of quiet, which is infused by God, as the will is kind of, so to speak, held captive or absorbed in his presence, um, the soul's capacity for God increases. So think of this like a virtuous cycle. The more time we spend in this contemplative prayer, the more time that we spend, you know, practicing our recollection, going into mental prayer, and receiving more and more from the Lord this gift of the prayer of quiet, our capacity to receive God grows. We can receive more of God. Um, our interior space, as it were, has expanded. And now God can fill up more of us. And so the more we receive from Him, the more we will receive. The more we are satisfied by Him, the more satisfied we will be. This is the beautiful truth of the spiritual life. Um, it's, again, it's a virtuous cycle. And the further on we go and the deeper in we go into the interior castle, we will discover like there's more and more room. And it's all filled with God. <laughs> That's the promise of the spiritual life, according to St. Teresa. So our interior space is expanded. Also, the virtues are strengthened in us. All of our virtues are strengthened. You know, so far, up to the third dwelling places, um, a lot of the work of growth in virtue has been acquired virtue. And that basically means, like any other habit, we just learn by doing it and by failing to do it. <laughs> we learn sometimes as much from our falls and failures as we do from our successes. But, you know, it's kind of by our own effort and we're um, just learning as we go and you know, getting better and, and better for the most part. But now in the fourth dwelling places, there's, on top of all of that, the foundation we've built, which is natural, now there's the infused virtues of God, which um, are allowing us to just operate out of those virtues like at kind of a whole new level. Again, it's like the supernatural mode versus the natural mode. So the soul that's spending more time in the fourth dwelling places now I mean, virtue is coming to the soul very, very naturally. And St. Teresa even says a soul that's in the fourth dwelling places is very unlikely, very unlikely to fall into mortal sin unless it gives up on the practice of prayer. And so what do you think the devil's going to try to get us to do in this dwelling place? Oh, you don't have to spend your time in prayer. God doesn't care. You can take a day off. Why don't you take a day off? Why don't you take two? Take two days off and so on and so on. And if we give up the practice of prayer, then of course these effects are going to reverse. Um, if God gives his gifts and we don't use them, we don't receive them, he will withdraw them because he is just. He's not going to, you know, um, he's not going to give himself to someone who won't receive him. He'll be there waiting for us when we come back. 
And so we need to continue persevering in prayer. Persevering in prayer. That's the, that's the essential thing to do throughout all the dwelling places, but especially here in the fourth. But so long as a soul does persevere in prayer and receiving the prayer of quiet, then Teresa says it's very unlikely it'll fall into any mortal sin. A soul that's come this far is on the sure and certain path towards the spiritual marriage, the transforming union with God at the center of the castle. So the virtues are all strengthened. As I mentioned, there's this deep healing that's taking place through contemplative prayer. The knots of tension are being released more and more. The, the places of you know, deep wounding and trauma in the soul are all being healed. And again, this is all, uh, even now, there's so much that's happening in the fourth dwelling places through the um, receiving of the supernatural infused prayer. But this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of an adventure which ultimately has no end. Because even though we will pray God to come to the seventh dwelling places, there we will find that the seventh dwelling places open up, open up into infinity and eternity. The union with God in eternal beatitude which has no end forever and ever and ever unto the ages of ages. Amen. So I leave you with that today as a, a taste of the riches of the fourth dwelling places. And uh, next week, pray God, we will continue on with the fifth, making our way with St. Teresa into higher and higher realms of prayer. Until then, dear friends, I pray that this second week of Lent for you is filled with blessings. And we'll remember, too, as we continue on through the desert, that even darkness and dryness can be a blessing. And the essential thing is to persevere, to keep going. Like the prophet Elijah, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness on his journey to Mount Horeb. And there on the mountain, he meets the living God. We need to keep going forward, keep taking the next good step, and trusting that at the end of our journey, God awaits us. And at the end, as we look back, we will find he was actually there all along the way. Dear friends, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Until then, the Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. For the...